Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on uh, Thursday, February 11th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, February 14th. So happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Yippee! <laughs> Another one in Huh? I was just going to say, we hope you have love in your heart. Yeah. <laughs> just keep it simple. Uh, my name is Teresa Robinson. I'm on the air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? Good, good. I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to uh, watching this Nollywood, Bollywood mashup movie on Netflix. That's coming out today. Ooh. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. And it's called Namaste Wahala. Cool. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. I'm looking forward to watching the Britney Spears documentary on Hulu. Oh, um, God. It's supposed uh, to be really disturbing. Is it? I My friend watched it and said it was amazing, but I don't know what, you know, how that word applies. But um, she and I are both also into, like, true crime, though, a lot. So it might, it might be for the true crime-minded. I'm not sure. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> interesting. Well, well I'm looking for yeah, free Britney, definitely. <laughs> I'm, awesome. I'm looking forward to watching the Black Messiah film that's coming out mm, this week. Yeah, um, that um, about some of the things that happen with the Black Power movement. So, really looking forward to just something, something in commemoration of also Black History Month as well. All right. So this week uh, we have a nice round of stories. We'll be talking about changes to the New Zealand parliamentary dress code, assault in a New Jersey's women prison, a positive outcome in a Nigerian farmer case against Shell Gasoline and reparations in the United States. All right. So we're going to go ahead and kick it off today with uh, our local news. Emily, you're up to bat. Alrighty. Um, So this story comes from a February 4th article by Colleen O'Day and Brianna Vernazzi on NJ Spotlight News. And that uh, news organization is under the same umbrella as PBS, just for some context, I usually think is helpful. Um, So the article is titled Three Officers at New Jersey Women's Prison Charged Charged After Alleged Assault. As investigation continues, Attorney General says guards attempted to cover up the incident. So the article explains, quote, three corrections officers were charged Thursday in the assault on inmates at the Edna Mahan uh, Correctional Facility. I think it's Edna Mahan Correctional Facility um, in Hunterdon County that left one woman with a fractured eye socket and another with a concussion last month. Uh, New Jersey Attorney General Gerbeer Gruwal said more charges are likely as the investigation continues into the incident, which occurred during overnight hours beginning January 11th as part of of an extraction of inmates from their cells. He said the filing of charges was delayed by the guards filing of false reports in an attempt to cover up the incident and injuries sustained by prisoners. This was only the latest problem at the troubled institution, Eight correctional police officers have been charged with sexual assault at the state's only women's prison since 2015. Arrests in 2018 led to an investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, and a report earlier this year found that conditions at the facility violate prisoners' civil rights. While the state was reportedly working with DOJ officials on a settlement agreement last summer, no final agreement has been been announced. 
Louis, Louis Garcia, Amir Bethea, and Anthony Valvano are being charged with, quote, official misconduct and tampering with public records. And Garcia is additionally being charged with, quote, aggravated assault for allegedly punching one of the victims 28 times in the face. Quote, complaints alleged Bethea and Valvano led two extraction teams that removed two women from their cells shortly before midnight on January 11. One woman complied and was handcuffed, but was still punched, leading to the fractured eye socket. The other did not comply and was pepper sprayed, pinned against the wall, and punched repeatedly, leaving her with facial injuries and a concussion. Grewal would not, would not discuss the motivation for the extractions or whether they were justified, saying more details would be revealed as the investigation progresses. He also would not comment on allegations by one woman that she was sexually assaulted. More than a dozen guards and other staff reportedly have been placed on administrative leave. Grual said more than two dozen officers at Mahan were involved in the extraction efforts and there are six women victims, end quote. Um, so there is video footage, apparently, that investigators are reviewing. Um, and Grual also noted that the use of pepper spray and beatings were, with, quote, without justification. Uh, the charges of tampering could result in a prison sentence of three to five years, while the misconduct and assault charges could lead to five to ten years. So there are bipartisan calls in the New Jersey state legislature to remove the current corrections commissioner, Marcus Hicks, who apparently Governor Murphy still supports as of the week before the story was reported, so uh, end of January. Um, Senator or State Senator Michael Testa is quoted as saying, we have federal reports of constitutional rights violations, unnecessary COVID deaths, evidence of widespread sexual and physical abuse, and now criminal charges related to the ongoing mismanagement of our prisons. How much evidence does Governor Murphy need that Commissioner Hicks is unfit to lead the New Jersey Department of Corrections? And that is my pretty depressing story. Um, it's not a new type of story in any means. I think the, the idea of violence in prisons um, enacted upon prisoners by the guards is as old as time in this country, if not most places in the world. Um, it's, it's just so grotesque to hear about. And then the added layers of it, the prisoners being women and the guards being men um, enacting these, I think... Um, I, I didn't read any female guard names, so um, I, there were two dozen officers involved. I'm not sure if any of them were women, but it's it's the ones that were charged. The three were men. Um, it's it's upsetting. It's um, it's grotesque. It's awful. It absolutely is awful, and I think that a lot of times these stories don't come out because I, you know, I've had. Uh, people that I know who have been involved in the prison system. And unfortunately there's so much abuse that goes on um, for, you know, simple things. It's, yeah. it's awful. And there's, there's really, it's almost like uh, these prisons are okay with these um, officers doing this to the prisoners. Like it's a part of the sentence or something. I mean, getting to the point, it's just, it's, you know, I, I feel like, getting to the point where you're hitting a prisoner that you're in charge of 28 times in the face is just like, it's, it's mind, it's like mind blowing, but it's also like the amount of, of anger and hatred 
against someone that you are in charge of protecting in some ways is just like, it's horrifying. It's a, it's a full on horror show. Um, yeah. And they, they're a part of a system that protects them, that it has already dehumanized the people mm-hmm. that are in the prison. And it, it attracts a certain type of person that wants to be in that role where they can do what they want. No one's going to stop them. You know, like we've talked about how there's a tie between, you know, like amongst police officers, there's a very high domestic abuse rate. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of these extremists that end up in the news for murder or plotting to blow up places. They have a history of violence against women or domestic violence of some kind in the home. I would imagine it's very similar for a lot of these guards, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, I, I've had people in my family that may have had that job, you know, that I love and everything. But even so, like, I wouldn't defend like that position in general, because there's definitely a certain type that is drawn to jobs where you have that authority. And it's, it's not always going to be a good person. It's interesting because your your point, and I was thinking about this while I was reading the story too, was um, it, it brings up those ideas that the Stanford prison experiment sort of drew out where um, I think like one of the official stories that came out of that experiment back in the 70s, I think, which was um, for anyone not familiar, it was at Stanford University. They got a bunch of students to pretend to act as prisoners and a bunch of students to act as guards. And then they documented the sociology going on and they had to end it early because the abuse against the, you know, student prisoners that weren't even real prisoners got too intense. But um, the, so, so in one ask, one story that comes out of that is just like any dynamic that puts some people in a total control situation over another group of people will result in violence no matter what. But there's, Another story that I remember reading about later, and I, I can't recall specifics exactly, but it's the idea that some if you're going to self-select to be a guard, and not all of them did, but I think some of them self-selected to be guards, that does that, I think part of the um, data was invalidated by that idea where it's like, so if are you predisposed to be violent if you're self-selecting as a guard already? So I think that's sort of like, is um, parallel to what you're saying, Jasmine, um, totally. And it totally brings up that idea too, where it's, you know, it doesn't, I mean, the fact that there's violence happening, it's, you know, I don't know, is it, it's, I, I, is it like a chicken or an egg thing? Like, is it a specific issue this prison is having or did they just get caught, right? Is this sort of thing happening? Oh, I think it's absolutely that. Right, exactly. It's absolutely that. Like that right. we've had, you know, I can't, think of the young lady's name I'll I'll try to find it or google it when you're back talking but she was like a young black trans woman she eventually uh, died like she was Mm -hmm. killed somehow in the prison Mm. there was that girl I think she was underage she was like 15 oh my god that the two NYC cops were charged with like they arrested her and they um, raped her basically and event like they were caught, but you know they got a slap on the wrist. Like they didn't get you know the full mm-hmm. blunt of the law didn't the full brunt of the law didn't fall on their heads. Like it's mm-hmm. I think anything that you find out about in the news is just a tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. with these people. Yeah, it's really it's a fucked up situation, and it's you know 
I already mentioned it earlier, but the added layers of, you know, of the female prisoners being at the mercy of these male guards that are clearly, again, I will say punched 28 times in the face in the middle of the night, right? And I remember I was reading something in the article about how, like, you know, their extractions are a thing that apparently does happen. um, And they're trying to figure out whether this one was just to like, I I think my, my analysis of the article I read was that they're trying to, they're still trying to figure out whether it was just to fuck with the prisoners or whether they had a good reason to do it. But there's also like the prisoners have rights when those things are happening, right? They're allowed to have the time to like, you know, to comply. Like, you know, there is no, there doesn't have to be an immediate reaction or whatever. And apparently there's video footage saying that like, I mean, obviously all of the violence and action of them was unnecessary, but um, yeah, it's just like, you know, when the people in charge are the ones enacting this violence, like, what do you do? It's just, it's, I, I don't know how you fix a, fix a culture that allows something like that to happen, honestly, you know? Um, I don't know if replacing the, the corrections commissioner is going to fix this. Um, this is like an endemic problem. That's just, it almost, you know, it's a human problem and not in the way where it's like, Oh, we just have to get used to it. It's like, we have to figure out what's going on that allows this shit to happen. Um, but I, it's also, as we said, not unique to this prison. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel like I've talked about prison reform a lot um, in different yeah. social mm-hmm. justice circles and, you know, it can't be some sweeping, like just into all prisons because obviously um, it's such a huge part of, the American system, right? So uh, overturn of that nature will come probably when we're dead and gone. But the reality Mm -hmm. is, I think it is a prison by prison, city by city, state by state situation. Because there are some places that we don't hear a lot about that are doing um, just different things to make prison reform more practical. And then there are people who are doing nothing and allowing Um, things like this, stories like this to surface, which is really, Mm -hmm. like you said, just the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of those mandates of how they handle this are on the local level. So we can't necessarily say we need some, you know, big federal mandate to change this. This really has to happen, unfortunately, probably one prison at a time. You know what I mean? And it it fucking sucks because there's so many people that are affected by the system. It, It almost feels like an endless battle. In the meantime, people are dying mm-hmm. of fucking being beat, COVID, and anything else that mm-hmm. can happen in prison. Um, so it's just really a huge problem. And, it, you know, I feel like city governments need to be more um, interactive in what it really means to have some sort of reform or change, fuck reform, change to how these systems will operate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would, be, I would be interested to know why these two women were locked up in the first place. And one thing, like, look, I, I will never pretend like I, I say a lot of stuff on this show. I don't have all the answers, but I feel confident to say what we have does not work. What we have right. is not working now. Right. Absolutely. We have people that are, you know, they're in, they're basically locked up because they're poor. You know, it's like they couldn't pay a certain fine or whatever. You have people locked up because they have a substance abuse issue and then their life is derailed. Like what we have needs to go in the garbage because I think that it's mentally like when you start justifying locking people up in a cage, whether you say it or not, like that's inherently like dehumanizing to that person. And it 
allows people to feel like they have permission to treat that person as less than a full human being. And I don't think that you will ever get, like, I don't believe that it's something that can really be reformed. And even if you do, it's like, you still have people that have been deprived of their freedom and all other types of rights over things that are basically like, there's no reason why they should have been locked up in the first place. You know, like, I, I don't know these two women that were victimized. Like, I don't know if they like killed someone or did anything. I would doubt it. I would bet that it's something that could have been remedied in some other way than having them locked away in a, in a cage. But I, I really think like at the root, like when you're allowing yourself to treat someone like they are no longer a full person, you can reform whatever you want to reform. People will find a way to take advantage of that. And they know they're always going to get cover because I'm better than you. I'm in charge of you. I'm over you. Who's going to care about what happens to you because you're in here? I totally agree with you. That's why I was saying that, you know, when we talk about prison reform, what we really need to talk about is change, like straight up change. There's, I feel like there's, like you said, what we're doing is not working for anyone. Um, and it's become so bad that there's layers on layers of bullshit that happens to keep these prisons operating in this way. So I definitely agree with you. Um, definitely a hot topic yeah. issue we need to keep talking about and bring more stories like this to the surface. Oh, the woman I d- didn't know her. Her name is Laylene Polenko. She was 27 years old and she mm-hmm. died on Rikers Island in solitary confinement when staff failed to give her medical care for 47 minutes after an epileptic seizure. So, and I think she had been locked up over something like ridiculous. And now she, she was held on misdemeanor assault charges and held on $500 bail. She was sent to jail because she couldn't afford the bail. And now she's dead. Like. Yeah, that's, oh, that's awful. Definitely. Bail reform is a whole nother thing. That's a whole nother topic um, that I've, I've had many conversations about because people end up in prison simply because they don't pay bail because they got to pay rent. And then when they get out, their whole life is just fractured. And sometimes they never recover from that, you know, but um, anyway, definitely a, a important story an important topic. Thank you so much, Emily, for bringing this story to the surface. I think we should have definitely more conversations about this and, uh, you know, definitely advocate for us trying to find a system to change um, these outcomes. So we're going to go ahead and take our first musical break today. So all of our music today is dedicated to Valentine's Day, which I'm kind of happy about. Um, the first track is a throwback classic, and I happen to really love the version by Shaka Khan. This is My Funny Valentine. We'll be right back. Valentine, sweet, call me Valentine, you make me 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn and now for our national news segment. So for my segment today, I will be um, kind of presenting three different articles to talk about reparations in the United States. Uh, The very first one is from the Washington Post. The article is titled Uncomfortable Truth, the Push for Slavery Reparations Commission in Congress. Um, The author of this article is Deneen L. Brown. Weeks after Democrats took control of Congress and the White House, a black lawmaker is making a renewed push push for a national commission to examine the impact of slavery and reparations for descendants of millions of enslaved Africans. Sheila Jackson Lee, she's a representative, a Democrat from Texas, announced the reintroduction of H.R. 40 to create the reparations commissions last month. And next week, the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties is set to hear testimony on the bill. H.R. 40 has a long history in the House, championed for decades by the late Representative John Conyers, who was a Democrat from Michigan, and now Representative Lee has taken over. The Reparations Commission would study the history of slavery, the role that federal and state governments played in supporting slavery, and racial discrimination against the descendants of enslaved Africans. Quote, economic issues are the root cause for many critical issues impacting the African-American community today. That was a statement by Lee. The commission would make recommendations regarding any form of apology, compensation, and atonement for slavery. Truth and reconciliation about the original sin of American slavery is necessary to light the way to the beloved community we all seek. The uncomfortable truth is that the United States owes its position as the most powerful nation in the world to its owning its slavery past. And that was a quote from Lee. Calls for reparations increased this summer after the anti-racism protests swept the entire world after the death of George Floyd. It also became an issue during the Democratic presidential primary race with the eventual winner Joe Biden supporting the creation of the commission. Dreesen Health, a human rights watch official, who is scheduled to testify during the reparations hearing next week, said that, quote, promises to end white supremacy and systemic racism and provide racial healing ring deeply hollow if the federal government is not taking steps to advance reparations for slavery, other forms of state-sponsored violence against black people, and ongoing racial discrimination created by public policy. So that is the first article. The next article um, is just a brief statement, but just to show how some reparation stuff is being done right now. This article is from socialjusticenews.com. The author is Ethan Huff. It's called Black Privilege. Virginia politicians want black college students to get reparations. Five public colleges and universities throughout Virginia have been ordered by the state legislature to offer special scholarships or economic development programs to descendants of slaves who once labored on their campus. Longwood University in Farmville 
Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, and the University of Virginia in Charlottesville have all been targeted. Because each of these schools was in existence prior to 1865, the year the Civil War ended, the assumption is that they all benefited from black slavery in some way, shape, or form. Consequently, they all need to now give back black people free money as reparations. Should the bill be signed into law, it would take effect starting the 2022-23 academic year. It will go to the Democratic-controlled Senate next, and if it passes, it will head to the desk of the governor, Ralph Northam, um, right after that. Okay, passed by a 61-39 vote in-house, the bill mandates that each of the aforementioned schools offer full four-year scholarships or economic development programs to descendants of black families who were involved in slavery. Said descendants will be allowed to choose any of the five institutions for attendance. Okay, and then the final article, just to wrap this up, um, this one here is from socialjusticenews.com, and this article is by Zoe Skye. The title is Lessons About World Wars and U.S. History Should Be Banned Because of Systemic Racism, says the Minnesota Department of Education. It looks like the Minnesota Department of Education wants to rewrite history or erase it from the public school curriculum. Uh, early in January, they presented new standards that would banish crucial lessons about World War I, World War II, and the Holocaust. Shockingly, the MDE, which is the Minnesota Department of Education, also proposed the erasure of vital historical moments like the Civil War, the American Revolution, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson. Instead of studying these important figures and moments in American and world history, students will be taught other topics such as gender equality, developing a respectful awareness of the LGBT plus community, how freedom and democracy included or excluded certain groups throughout U.S. history, the Reconstruction period, particular efforts to disenfranchise newly freed black Americans, systemic racism in America allegedly rooted in the country's founding, an analysis of the ideology of manifest destiny and its relationship to whiteness, Christianity and capitalism, and finally Minnesota's juvenile justice system and its evaluation on the impact of black, indigenous, and people of color communities. Under Minnesota law, the state's Department of Education establishes standards for K through 12 public schools for these several categories. According to an entry from John Henderacker of the Powerline blog, a committee revisee revises the benchmark for each category every 10 years. For 2021, the social studies standards are now being revised. However, the committee spearheaded the revision, including government, Governor Tim Waltz, is, quote, hard left. Hindecker expresses his shock in the first draft, which also received thousands of comments from concerned citizens. Unfortunately, these comments have been dismissed uh, without careful consideration. So, you know, the comments probably were a lot on both sides of what this change in the curriculum would bring about um, and how the students would be able to either get the information that will be taken out, uh, refer the information that they're learning back to it. So I, I think there's a lot of ironing out with this story, uh, this part of the story. But the reality is that this this school district or this, this state is thinking of clearly changing what the students are being taught. So now I'm just going to tell you uh, my position and then offer it up to um, my co-host here to kind of discuss what reparations actually means. To me, these 
sort of sub stories to the first one about how reparations or kind of um, a change to how information is presented to students and available and also access to higher education, access to being able to go to school without a bunch of loans and having specific programs targeted at people who are direct descendants of slaves. These are the efforts that are currently into play and just some of them. I'm sure there's many more um, in regards to reparations. In my opinion, reparations is not just a check or a financial freedom or a way out from poverty for people of color. Color. To me, reparations is systemic. It has to start from teaching students, teaching kids, teaching people the true history, honoring the dark past, you know, so that we can, in the same breath as we honor the dark past, honor the people who survived it and the change makers who basically lost their lives. So the story can be different today. Um, I think that reparations is a topic that a lot of people have a hard time talking about. You know, um, I remember when I first started having conversations about this in social justice circles, it's like, you know, what does this look like? Is this free college? Is this a check? Is this rent? Uh, is this a monthly stipend? What is this? And today I feel that we have to do a better job at teaching programming, right? Because that's what basically these institutions in America do and across the world with their education. Um, and just giving people the opportunity to hear real truth and determine their own understanding of the historical past. I think that brings enlightenment. I think that offers other opportunities for people to seek different pathways to success and presenting a real truth is really the, the, the start of righting some of these wrongs. You know, not trying to put away financial stipends or any sort of other programs that can help communities of color. But to me, the knowledge base, the actual uh, exchange of this information as it's being taught and talked about is, is crucial to ending systemic racism. All right, I'm off my soapbox. Ladies, what do you think? That was awesome, Teresa. Um, pulling those three stories together and, and tying them together in the way you did, I think, was a very thought-provoking narrative, for sure. I'm, I'm, Thank you. I'm processing a lot of it. It's it's hard for me to come up with like a you know a statement in the sense that like the one you just did because you you've so beautifully tied them together. I I was I'm thinking more of each of the stories individually and um, how I want to like to talk about them and break them apart. But um, before I, Jasmine, do you want to talk about something holistically before I narrow in on anything? <laughs> yeah. How about this? Tell them to bring me my money. And, you know, I think it's important to understand that we, in the stories you mentioned, you mentioned slavery, but um, there were so many people after slavery, during Reconstruction, during Jim Crow, who were driven violently from their land from their businesses by Mm -hmm. um, angry racist white people. And there's a legacy of that, like being dispossessed of that. It will follow you for generations, you know, and that's a huge part of the um, wealth inequality that we see. There's that there's um, locking people up, taking them away from their families and from the community like that has an economic impact. So, you know, I absolutely believe in um, cutting people a check. 
I am also, I just want to also be very clear. There's unfortunately like a very xenophobic, jingoist um, streak in a lot of these reparation talks where certain uh, African-American people, which is, that's what I am. Like my ethnicity and my heritage is um, Black people who have been in the United States for many generations. But there are people who go above and beyond to be like, well, you know, we're not gonna, you know, we should get reparations, but not if you're, you know, a Black immigrant, like you shouldn't get anything. I don't believe in any of that because all of these global powers that are running shit right now, whether it was here, the Caribbean, or through colonialism in Africa, like they owe all of us. So yeah, bring me my money, period. I totally agree with you. No, I totally agree with you. And the lesson plans. Like, I think the last article you mentioned sound like it was sort of right-wingy. Like, it was sounding like super anti, and I don't even know how much I believe of what they were talking about. Like, I doubt the schools are literally going to not teach about the world wars. Do you know, right. Yeah, what that, what, do what, do you know what outlet that article came from, Teresa? Yeah, that one is from a website called socialjusticenews.com. Interesting. And do you know if they, if they swing left or right or... It sounds left lefty, um, but I sure. I would have to double check sure, sure. on that. Yeah, exactly no problem. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah, Jasmine, because I think it struck me as I'm not a fan of of not teaching about the Holocaust <laughs> in school. Yeah. So hearing that was right. a little was a little like, um, but again, and again, I yeah, I don't. It does it does sound very. The article did sound um, more. You know, we've we've talked about how there's no such thing as unbiased news, but that sounded more like I don't I don't really know what the angle was, but there was definitely an angle. Um, it sounded super right. I think you said it sounded lefty. It sounded like it was sort of like anti SJ. Yeah. Like look at how ridiculous what they want to teach is because I, I don't. What school is not teaching about the war? Right. Yet? Well, the the outlet sounded lefty. <laughs> like the title she said, "Social Justice Network" oh, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. But the article itself, right? So like I'm I I think. I would definitely want to read more about that because um, I think that I'm I'm all about adding those things to our curriculum. I don't. It's 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 weird to me the idea that you would have to remove so much of world history to add those those lenses because that's what those things are is like lenses you can add on to historical events. Yeah, because it's a part. Yeah, of yeah, like, yeah. I agree. Talk about even like the Holocaust, like there were mm-hmm. that's like LGBTQIA yep. plus history is involved in that. There were yep. black people that were targeted by the Nazis. There yep. were Roma. They, like, the Nazis, all of that is connected. It's the, not separate. The Nazis modeled their, you know, what is whatever their quote unquote science on like U.S. racism, like history, like it's all yeah. interconnected. Like you yeah. could use that to talk about, you know, they looked at what Andrew Jackson did to the indigenous mm-hmm. people. They looked at Jim Crow. Like you can tie that into World War Two beautifully. Yeah. Absolutely. But, I don't know. They're making yeah. it seem like if you talk about one, you have to delete the other, which is not true. Right. And exactly. Yeah, I've really presented that article just so we can see, you know, what are some of these uh, methods, you know, that are out there in these different pockets of the United States and what they think may work. You know, who the, I don't think that this could actually really ever happen, but I do agree that implementing these lessons along with the classic lessons that will give you a, a real mm-hmm. picture, yeah. you know, cause there's really no other place for us to, to have these conversations unless we privy mm-hmm. ourselves to them. And I'm thinking of, you know, youth coming up, you don't want to erase things 
and replace them with the with the intricacies you want to definitely paint a full picture if you're really trying to end something systemic you know you got to give them mm-hmm. everything that and that so that they can make like i said you know when i was doing my recap they can make their mm-hmm. own interpretation yeah um yeah independent thought and all that stuff for sure um i also want to note too i'm jumping around a bit but there are precedents for these sorts of reparations um germany gave reparations to um holocaust survivors um, you know, so it, it, there's, this isn't like coming out of nowhere and not that any of us were making it sound like that on the show, but like it's, but it, what's also like, I, you know, the idea of that the way this country <laughs> deals with money and the way this country does not like giving money to people who don't already have money, it's just like, I don't know, disheartening sort of mess, but, um, I would love to see it personally. Well, like Jasmine said, give me. My yeah. money. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that. Pay me. <laughs> like, you can pay know, everybody. Right. Like, you know, there's all people of all colors in this country have been exploited for various reasons, and we definitely have been as Black people. So I'm all for getting my check. I get a check. You get a check. We all get a check. Everybody You know, a check. you know they're good know for right. it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, ladies. That was a fruitful discussion. Definitely enjoy uh, talking about things like this and just really trying to put our minds around it, you know, because uh, we have to bring these conversations to the surface so people can really start thinking about it even more. So we'll go ahead and take our next musical break. Um, The next song is a very beautiful ballad that I'm in love with. Um, And I was waiting for an opportunity to play this. You know, I don't really like to play slow tunes too much on this show because we like to keep the energy high but this is probably one of the most beautiful love songs i've heard in a really long time um it's called you move i move and it's by john legend and Jeannie aiko we'll be right back I don't need words, you don't need to say it. Go with the feeling, and I'll do the same. That's how this works. I put you first. You're twisting, you're turning. I wanna learn. When I'm lost, you give me order. Pull me back and push me forward. Take me in and hold me. Hold me closer, I'll follow you up and over. You control me fast and slow. When you move, I move. gonna bleed but i'll pick you up and put you back on your feet oh that's how this works i put you first yeah i do for you what you want me to cause when i'm lost you give me order pull me back and push me forward take me in and hold me 
Jones. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our international news segment. Jasmine, you're up to bat. All right. So this information is called from two separate articles. One is from The Guardian and the title is New Zealand male MPs no longer have to wear ties after Maori MP ejected. The other article is from Al Jazeera. New Zealand Parliament relaxes dress code after Maori MP tie row. Row as in like R-O-W as in like a fight or a, a scandal. So New Zealand's male MPs will no longer be required to wear ties in Parliament. Speaker Thomas Mallard last week decided to keep the requirement that male MPs wear ties in Parliament's debating chamber after asking members of parliament to write to him about what constituted appropriate business attire in the house. Mallard ejected Maori party co-leader Rawiri Waititi from the chamber for refusing to wear a tie. Mallard said Waititi could not be called on to speak if he was not wearing a tie. When Waititi continued to speak, he was ejected from the chamber. Waititi said on Tuesday, February 9th, he had chosen to wear cultural dress, Maori business attire to the chamber with a green stone necklace in place of a necktie. And the name of the stone is P-O-U-N-A-M-U. It looks, I would say a punamu. I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation. Um, And Waititi also has a full face te moku tattoo and wears a black cowboy hat. Waititi said as he left on Tuesday, this is not about ties. It's about cultural identity. This is a breach of the rights of indigenous peoples. We must have the freedom to express our cultural identity in a space like this, he said. The indigenous Maori people make up about 15% of New Zealand's 5 million population, but they are overrepresented in statistics such as poverty and imprisonment with many blaming injustices dating back to the days of British colonial rule. They are also overrepresented in um, the number of children in state care and uh, unemployment statistics. Uh, I believe that this happened in 2020 when he was first elected, that Waititi said, I will adorn myself with the treasures of my ancestors and remove the colonial noose around my neck so that I may sing my song. He said this as he was removing his tie and recounted the story of an ancestor of his wrongly killed by the British for murder. New Zealand Parliament Speaker Trevor Mallard later announced that ties would no longer be required after a meeting on Wednesday of the Standing Orders Committee held to discuss the issue and hear a submission from the Maori Party. 
The committee did not reach a consensus, but the majority of the committee was in favor of removing the requirement for ties to form part of, quote, appropriate business attire for males, Mallard said. As speaker, I am guided by the committee's discussion, and therefore ties will no longer be considered required as part of appropriate business attire. So this current New Zealand parliament is the most inclusive ever elected in the country. Nearly half of the 120 seats are held by women. There's 11% LGBTQ representation and 21% Maori representation. The parliament saw its first um, member of parliament of African origin and of Sri Lankan origin after the election last October. So get a load of me, like, you know, with some good news. Like, I know I'm usually the one with something that doesn't end well, but that was something that I think, you know, was a positive outcome. And I'm happy that that's how it turned out. Hell yeah, that was great. I love that story. Um, I was getting really mad when you were starting the story, obviously, because the rules are are so stupid and are so culturally biased. And it reminded me a lot of um, all the um, the rules in U.S. public schools against like natural black hair, because um, I like you know where there are schools where essentially they're it's it almost forces students of color to um, have their hair be like flat ironed, like pin straight, even though that's not natural or healthy, um, just because it doesn't match the code. Oh, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember we all those know. things. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's it's so fucked up. It's so fucked up, and it's just like it's just a reminder, like who's in power makes the rules. Um, so it's really cool to hear the story where. Um, on like the highest level of government it got overturned so hell yeah yeah i agree i definitely think that you know there's so much things that need to be revamped in the way that you know nations and cities and states and institutions in general are run um a lot of the bullshit that happens in situations like this were these these rules and laws were designed to keep things separate to keep people out you know that's the way these these um that's the way the system was designed. And it doesn't matter what country you're in, you know, racism and, and all these other forms that you can call from these rules is embedded into the way that they do these processes. So to have something mm-hmm. change um, now is really important. It's late, but it's definitely positive news. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll put, I'll definitely put the link to what happened on our uh, Facebook page and also on our Instagram. So our Facebook is facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. Our Instagram is at objection to the rule just before I forget to say it. But yeah, like I think there are so many things that get portrayed as being neutral or it's just professional it's the standard oh it's business Mm -hmm. and it's not like there's a reason why if you talk a certain way like whether that's like aave or like you speak your native language or you know people were beaten for speaking speaking their own languages in this country and it's happened in other countries you know there was violence involved in taking like Native American children from their homes and forcing them into schools where they had to cut their hair, you know, and like 
Emily brought up what happens with black people if you wear your hair and like natural in your braids, if you have an afro, oh you're you're aggressive. Like that's not professional. Like, hi Aunt Sabrina. Like my aunt told me back when she went natural, I think in the nineties, someone at her job like pulled her aside, like, what's going on? You know, like <sighs> these things are not do whenever something gets like oh like that's you're exaggerating like it's just it's just about professionalism it's just about you know we all want to follow the rule we all have to follow the rule it's like no those things are rooted in oppression and you shouldn't let people gaslight you don't let them snow you with the bullshit that you're not making sense when you push back against it. And I'm glad, you know, this person, Waititi was ejected last year and I'm glad that he came back again this year and said the same shit over again. Like, you will not deny me my own culture, like on my own land. So good good for him, good for them. Like, you know, it's a little bit of, you know, a ray of hope or something. And let's hope that that trend continues. Absolutely. And that was a great segue into our good news segment. So Emily, what you got for us? Yeah, um, our continuing good news segment, which is very exactly. fun this week. Thank you so much, Jasmine. <laughs> it's all the love, um, y'all. It's all the love. <laughs> it's for Valentine's Day. Exactly. Um, Alrighty. So this story comes from a February 10th article by the one and only Andy Corbley, who seems to write all the articles that I want to <laughs> um, quote on the show. Um, and he's on the Good News Network uh, website. And the article is titled, Nigerian Villagers Score Victory for Humanity when a court verdict slams Shell Oil for liability after years of spills. The article explains, quote, four Nigerian farmers have won a 13-year legal battle against Shell Oil after a spill allegedly contaminated their lands. The David versus Goliath story went all the way from the rural Niger Delta, Delta to the Hague Court of Appeal, resulting in the farmers being compensated with further mandates for both safety and cleanup being pressed upon parent company Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, so the farmers are from the, the it's GOI, I think it's Goi and Aruma communities. Um, and Shell apparently tried to argue that the spills were the result of some sort of sabotage, um, but they couldn't prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. This is me adding my own note, but that sounds like, you know, real trumped up sort of, uh, you know, trying to get out of jail free card. They're trying to throw in. It sounds like they made that up. I didn't read any legal documents. I was just like, fuck that. Anyway, the court agrees with me. Um, they couldn't prove that. Um, so, quote, along with arbitrating a settlement, the court found that Shell Nigeria lacked any kind of leak detection system in the pipelines and wells in and around the Goyi and Oruma communities, and that state-of-the-art systems must be installed or risk a 100,000 euro per day um, and that's $121,000 per day fine. Uh, furthermore, a local cleanup operation was found to be insufficient, and it was ruled that Shell must conduct a much more thorough cleaning of the oil from the waters and the farmland, end quote. Um, one of the farmers is a man named Eric um, D-O-O-H, Duo, uh, perhaps. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name, but he is quoted as saying, quote, it is a longtime victory that we have been dreaming of. It is not only a victory for me, it is a victory for the entire Niger Delta region, the Ogoni people and uh, the civil society organizations. It is a victory for me and my family. It is a victory for humanity. Um, so fuck you, oil companies. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, that's my good news story. Um, 
I can't believe there's a world where the oil company may was potentially not going to have to pay for the cleanup of its own spill. Um, but I'm happy to say that they will have to pay for it. So there you go. As they should, for sure. Well, thank you so much for that good news story, Emily. And I believe that's it, guys. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify or anywhere you can get iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Happy Valentine's Day again. I hope you love yourself. I hope you have love in your life. And if you need some, take all this love I'm giving you right now. Our final check of the day, right? We just love y'all. And we really appreciate your support to our show. So definitely send I don't know these people. I'm happy they listen. (laughs) Well, I love our listeners. (laughs) But if, if, if you love us, we appreciate you. I appreciate you. There we go. That works. Appreciation. I love our listeners. I appreciate you. And I love my co-host. Oh. Because um, we really make this yeah. thing each week. Oh. I know. I'm such a lover. <laughs> I know, right? So for our final track of the day, we're going to play you out with some happy music. This is Happy Valentine's Day by Outcast. See you next week. Bye. 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 My name is Cupid Valentino. The modern day Cupid, and I just want to say one thing Happy Valentine's Day! I don't think y'all heard me, I just want to say Happy Valentine's Day! Can y'all dig that? Now, when arrows don't penetrate, see. He shoots straight for your heart now, and he won't miss you. But that's alright, y'all won't believe in me anyway. But you won't believe in me, but you
you trying to protect your little feelings but you can't run away Be some kind of player or something. Well, keep on running, player, because I got my good shoes on and I got them tied up tight. So you're going to find out tonight. Surrounded by the lovely, but yet feel like a loner. Could be an organ donor, the way I give up my heart, but never know because shit, I never tell her. Ask me how I'm feeling, I'd holler that it's irrelevant. I don't get myself caught up in the jello jello and putting props that others opt to call falling in love. But for the record, have you ever rode a horse? Like for you to take me to if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City and check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram.com forward slash City Running Tours.